Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this message, Billy Humphrey dives into the second chapter of Song of Solomon, teaching on how the love of God transforms the way we see ourselves and calls us to a higher purpose. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. All right, we are on part four. Can anybody remember what we're talking about? Song of Solomon. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, thanks for reminding me. Um, No, I got this. I actually do have this. I might trip on this. Okay. Um, So I will just tell you this. I'm going to get into this message, but I want to tell you something. I've been studying Song of Solomon in some seasons really intensely, in other seasons just you know, like as a, as a hobby almost, just going back to it here and there, for about 20 years, okay? For about 20 years, I've been into this book, and it's been something I've just constantly gone back to. Over 20 years, for the last 20 years, I've constantly been in this book every single year at some level, some point in time, okay? And I will tell you this. This week, as I was getting the notes together for the message today, uh, the Lord starts showing me a whole bunch of stuff I've never seen before in Song of Solomon. Now, just I want you just to think about that. I've been looking at this for 20 years, literally every year, sometimes more intense, sometimes less, but every year for sure, in it, you know, for a bit of time at least, reading it, studying it. And here I am 20 years later, and literally this week, I'm digging in, and start, stuff starts popping off the page at me that I've never seen before. Now, I can only assume it's for y'all, okay? Like, I, I mean, my, the only connection, the only difference is I'm now speaking to young adults, <laughs> And so I feel like what I have tonight is specifically for you. I've never preached this publicly or, and shared it just with a few people privately. But the things that I'm going to share tonight are stuff I've never shared before because I never saw it before. So I think that what I have tonight is for you specifically. Do you see why I'm making that connection? I'm not trying to hype anything up. I'm just trying to say, like, I've been studying this a long time. This week, bang, stuff starts popping off the page. Seems like it's got to be for y'all. Do I have a witness? Thank you. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We're asking that tonight you would open the eyes of our heart, and you would speak with revelation. You would encounter us with truth Lord, I pray for identity and vision to be released to every heart tonight, that you would rebuild identity and you would speak vision. Rebuild identity and speak vision. Do that in every single one of us, myself included. And I just want you to say this to me, say, Jesus, make me your target Speak to my heart. Change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, put a pull on this. Put a draw on this tonight. All right, we are in Song of Solomon chapter 2. We're going to look at the first seven verses. I was initially going to 
do the whole chapter, but as I said, the Lord, he was unpacking stuff to me that I literally have never seen before. So I'm just going to do the first seven verses. Next week, I'll come back and I'll do the last part of the chapter. Uh, I thought I would get done with Song of Solomon. I was going to try to cram it into seven weeks. That's probably not going to happen, but it's all good. The Bible's good, so we'll just keep rolling until we're done. How's that sound? Seem good? All right, good. Got thumbs ups? All right, good. All right, so here we go. New King James. Uh, we're going to read the first seven verses. That's what we're going to teach out of tonight. Here we go. Song of Solomon 2. And by the way, if this is your first message in Song of Solomon, go back and listen to the last three because I cannot recap all that. All right, good. Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Now that's, that's the maiden speaking right there. And then he, the, the beloved, he answers. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Now she's going she's gonna to answer. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. And she's going to turn, and she's going to speak to the bystanders, the daughters of Jerusalem, and she's going to say this. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. All right. So there's a lot in those passages, and I want to I want to get into some some detail of what's going on there. But I really believe that tonight the Lord is going to speak to some of you in a profound way about your identity, and He's going to speak to you about a vision for your whole life. And I, the, I, I wish I somehow could turn the volume up on the authority of my voice so that what I say doesn't ever leave you. Because the things that God's been sharing with me from these passages, they are life-altering and essential. I mean, I, I can't, oh, I, could, I just wish I could turn the volume up so that as, as I'm saying it, it, it hits your heart with just power. So, Lord, do that, I ask, in Jesus' name. All right, so verse 1 and verse 2, this is the first time we hear her talk about herself. Now, again, she represents us. She represents the bride, bride of Jesus, the church. This is the first time we see her talk about herself since chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. And in 5 and 6, she says this. She says, I am dark. Do not look at me. Don't look at me. So remember, she's going through a spiritual crisis. She has been, you know, falling to temptation and getting beat up by the trials of this life. She's getting burned by all the daily things that are going on in the, in the world. And so she says, I, she's in shame. She is messed up. And she says, don't even look at me. Don't even look at me, all right? 
Now, this is the first time she's talking about herself since those verses. And here, something has radically shifted in her. She says, I'm a rose. And I'm a lily. She has completely transformed in the way that she thinks about herself. Now, that is shocking. Have you ever met somebody, and I have, I've seen this happen in people over the years, where in one moment of time, they are completely covered in shame, and then, snapshot, pause, see them about two months later, and bang, they are completely different. And they are completely uh, enamored with God, and their heart is free. I've seen those transformations take place, and you can see it on their face. The countenance shifts. The person's face shifts. And I'm not talking about they put, they put on a plastic smile. I'm talking about they look different. And she is in this place where right now, in chapter 2-1, she goes, it's all changed for me. She goes, I'm not, you know, jacked up and full of shame anymore. She goes, I'm a rose, and I'm a lily. Now, the rose, everybody knows this. It's known as the, obviously, it's the, the flower that represents love, but it's the one that's probably the most renowned. It's the most, renowned is the most beautiful flower, the rose. And then the lily would be the second. And so she says, I am the rose and I am a lily. And she says, I'm the rose of Sharon. This isn't just any rose. The Sharon Valley, that's a real valley in Israel, it's known for how fertile and how, how much the soil produces amazing flowers and fruit. Everything that comes up out of the Sharon Valley is like incredible. She goes, I'm not just any rose. I'm the rose of Sharon. I'm like an amazingly beautiful rose. She goes, and I'm not just any lily. I'm the lily of a valley, which is known as a beautiful lily. And then he's going to answer her, and he's going to go, you're not just a lily of the valley, you're, you're a lily among thorns. He, he one-ups her. He says, compared to everything else in the whole world, it's all thorns, but you're a lily. Now, there's a little thing there. You see a rose is red, and a lily is white. The red is the blood that cleanses the darkness that makes her pure white. It's an interesting little interplay there. So this thing is powerful because there's a massive transformation in her identity. And I want you to think about your identity. And I want you to think about what is your identity built on. Is it built on how you perform? Is it built on your position? Is it built on what people say about you? What is your identity built on? Because what we're going to find out is that what's happened in her, the transformation in her identity is all about her coming into agreement with the way he thinks about her. And I want you to get this. 
the most powerful thing that can happen to you about your identity is if you begin to believe what God says about you. If you will begin to see yourself the way God sees you, it's the most powerful thing that can happen to your identity. When you perceive yourself the way he perceives you, it transforms you on the inside like nothing else. No one can give you what God gives you as it relates to your identity. Okay? So whatever your identity is built on, if it's not built on what God says, hear me, then your identity is subject to a thousand other factors. It's subject to whether you did well or did poorly. It's subject to whether you got up on the right side of the bed or the wrong one. It's subject to whether they flicked you off in traffic today or not. Or it's subject to whether they treated you right or stole your thing or you won the prize or whatever. Your identity can be built on so many things that every little experience of life, it actually shifts the way you view yourself. The only thing that causes you to have a stable identity is when your identity is built on what God says about you. Am I making sense? And the most powerful thing that can happen in your self-image is you begin to believe the way he sees you. You begin to believe that his opinion of you is the only opinion that matters. I just want you to think about the opinions that have crafted the way you think about yourself, the comparisons, all the different times of being affirmed and being rejected that have formed how you think of yourself. And I want to tell you, Though those things are, have impact, they are not permanent and they have no power compared to believing what God says about you. Believing that you are what he says. And not just judicially, not just I'm saved, sanctified, redeemed, I'm blessed, not just judicially, emotionally. The way God looks at you, he goes, oh, you're a rose. You're a dove. You're faithful. You're beautiful. Tapping into that, it, it changes the way you experience your understanding of yourself. Okay? And so, it's the most powerful way that we can understand our identity. It's by coming into agreement with what God says. The way that we come into agreement with what God says, it's the most simple thing. It's continual encounters with God in worship, prayer, and in the Word. Listen, listen to me. If you have a problem with your self-identity, if it's based on performance or what other people think or what other people say, if your self-identity is, is like fluctuating based on your situation 
you really do need to hear the Lord speak to you. And it's not just grabbing that prophetic thing out of there. It's actually letting him speak to you through the word and letting that rewrite the script on the inside until you believe that more than the voices in your head, those voices of comparison out here, the voices of rejection of your past, or even on the other side, the voices of affirmation, everybody blowing you up, pumping you up. You know what I found? Man, <laughs> people will flatter you until they're tired of flattering you, and then they'll slaughter you. They flatter you until they're tired of flattering you, and then they slaughter you. They slaughter to the flattered calf. That's right, the flatted calf. But it's so true. If you, Listen, this whole thing about going, like, getting popular on the Internet, that is the biggest, like, rug pull getting ready to happen five minutes of fame or five seconds of fame or whatever it is that people want because they want to feel affirmed and important. They want to feel like, like there's somebody that matters and they have no concept of an identity that's rooted in the way that God thinks about them. And it's wild because you have entire internet, this whole thing, influencers or internet personalities, that's a whole brand new thing just with you guys. Your generation is the... It's the first generation, and you're like, oh, yeah, I know what an internet influencer is, an internet personality. We didn't have those guys. We didn't have any of that. But that whole, that whole category, it's all based on how much of an exhibitionist can I be to get as many responses as possible. And even this whole new thing about, like, trolls that just troll as hard as they can to get more responses. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like that is the most weird concept to anybody over like 30. I'm, I'm like, okay, so they're actually saying things to piss people off so that people get pissed off so they respond so they get more like traction and then they get paid. Like, right, yeah, that's exactly it. That's their job. <laughs> like, okay. I don't know what your identity is, and I don't know what your vision is, if that's how you want to spend your whole life. But I, will, I would wager, just dare to bet, that you probably don't got a very good self-identity if that's how you spend all your days. Just a thought. Okay, I mean, I could be really wrong, but I'm just a little, just a wager. <laughs> so here's the most powerful thing, is coming into agreement with what God says about you. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. In your quietest moment, you think about yourself. Is your opinion of you what God says? Or is your opinion of you, you don't have to answer me, this is not what the point is, I want you to consider it. Is your opinion of you what God says? Or is your opinion of you what all these other voices and experiences say? Something's happened to her. When I look at what's happened to her, I go, I want that in me. She's like, I'm dark. Don't even look at me. And one chapter later, she goes, I'm a rose. <laughs> That's power. That is power. Listen, coming into agreement with God's opinion of you 
creates an anchor and a root on the inside of you. That it's, it's called being rooted and grounded in love. And when you are rooted and grounded in love, nobody can jack with it. It's a beautiful place to live. It's not that it never gets tampered with. It's that you come back foundationally to the truth of the way God thinks. So that happens through continual interactions in the Word and in prayer. And it causes us to change the way we see ourselves. It changes our opinion about ourselves. We have to know, oh, guys, we have to know the way God thinks and feels about us so that our inner dialogue about ourself changes. Some of you, if, you, if I had a printout of your inner dialogue, your conversation to yourself about yourself, and if I read it, I'd go, this person hates you. Because you're sitting there beating yourself up, saying all this mess about yourself for the least little mistake or challenge or problem or your own perspective of your own failure. And it's not what God says. And what you don't realize is you've got a demon whispering in this ear, going into your head, and you coming to agreement with that demonic voice. It's now weaponized against yourself. You're in agreement. Your internal dialogue is all about how bad you suck and how you shouldn't exist. And then you're in agreement with it. And then you'll even say it out of your mouth. And then the other side of that, so that's self-hatred, but the other side of it is instead of the self-hatred coming out of your mouth, arrogance and narcissism comes out because you can't even deal with looking at the truth of your own brokenness, so you just pump yourself up and act like you're the greatest thing ever, and on the inside, it's all a smokescreen, and you know it. Dang, I'm preaching good right now. Freaking killing it right now. All right. Sorry. Y'all are like. Mm. Thank you, Lord. All right. So there's an intentional process I want to show you in Song of Solomon that God takes us through to rebuild our identity. It's shocking. It's right there. I've never seen it before. I'm pretty sure it's for y'all. So I gave you four metaphors last week from chapter one. And when you look at those four metaphors, they are an intentional process that God uses to rebuild your identity. All right? So I'm going to go back to them. Song of Solomon 1, verse 9. If you've got your Bible or your device, just look at it. I want you to see it. Get your eye on it. I want these phrases to get in you. I want when you read the phrase, you go, I know that means I'm his favorite. Oh, like it needs to be that, that much of a knee jerk. Oh, I'm his favorite. Okay. He goes, I've compared you, my love, verse 9. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. We talked about this in detail last week. But it literally is him saying, you're my favorite. When I think of you, you're my favorite. 
He goes, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. The cheeks represent the emotions, and they are adorned with these ornaments that he gave her. He goes, it's lovely. And so the cheeks represent the way that she's emotionally responding to him. Okay? The, the filly is, he says, you're my favorite. The cheeks, it's the emotional response. Your neck with chains, the neck represents the will. It directs a person. They turn their neck, their head turns, it directs them. The neck is the will. He goes, your neck, it's adorned with golden chains. He goes, beautiful. Your will is beautiful. And then he says this, you have dove's eyes. You are faithful. So here is the process Each one of those metaphors speaks a different critical truth to her to help rebuild her identity. He's taking her from the journey, I'm dark, don't look at me, to I'm a rose. Roses don't, roses want to be seen, right? So he says, you're my favorite one. You're like my filly. You're my favorite one. Listen, he's telling her, you're valuable. You're valuable. You matter to me. You matter to me. You're not overlooked. You're not a throwaway. You're not forgotten. You're not second class. You're not, you know, my my 10th choice, you are valuable to me. You're important. This is what I want you to, I want, I want you to ask yourself and I want you to dialogue with the Lord about. How much does God value you? Do you know and believe how valuable you are to him? He comes out of the gate with, you are valuable to me. He goes, just like my favorite, favorite filly, you are my favorite. You're that valuable to me. When you think of your position in God's emotions, do you think of yourself as so valuable? Or do you think of yourself as like the 25th choice Out of 25, do you think of yourself as the leftovers? Some people, they they think God loves them like the stray dog. That's how they imagine themselves, that I'm a stray dog, that God, he's he's a good God, so he picked me up, my, my little stray dog self, and, you know, he throws me scraps every now and then, and, you know. I'm not dead on the street, praise God. You get up, and your, your gratitude testimony is, I thank God I'm not dead on the street. He throws me scraps every now and then. <laughs> and that's how you picture yourself. He goes, not close. You are my favorite. You are the most valuable to me. How do you esteem your value before the Lord? He wants to rebuild your identity, and he wants you to know right now 
He traded his son for you. Jesus wants you to know it, there was, he was joyful about the fact that he was about to go be butchered and bludgeoned and tortured to death. He was joyful about that because he knew on the other side of that was you. You're that valuable. The Bible says it pleased the Father to crush him. You're that valuable. You're that valuable. What is the voice telling you in your head? You're not worth anything. You shouldn't be here. You're a mistake. Nobody likes you. That is a lying demon. Because the Father's voice is, do you know how valuable you are to me? I traded my son for you. The son says, do you know how precious you are to me? I was joyful about laying down my life for you, just so I could have you. He wants to rebuild your identity, and he wants to start with your value. It's not based on anything you do. It's based on the fact that he made you for himself. He wanted relationship with you. That's why he made you. That one's like the hardest one for me to get. Like you wanted, you wanted, you wanted this? Five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing. Like what? I've got nothing I can give. I'm, I'm not, I mean, come on. He goes, there's not another one like you. He made you an emotional, sentient being. So you could respond to the entire spectrum of emotion and desire in his heart. And your response to that is all he desires. You are the object of his affections. He says, you are valuable to me. You matter to me. You're my favorite one. Rebuilding identity starts with an understanding of how God values you. Second, he says, your emotions. Your emotions are beautiful. And here's how you know. Here's how you know that you've got a yes in your heart. Here's how you know. When you jack it up, when you sin, when you fail, when you just cold-blooded sin, do you feel awesome about that? Are you like, yes, I'm in complete rebellion against God. It's awesome. Or are you like, I've, I've failed and my whole life is over. Like, I, I'm for many young people, I mean, like, they, you like, they're like, I'm a reprobate. I'm like, okay, what happened? I stole a pencil. I'm like, bro, I can guarantee you're not a reprobate. Because you're heartbroken over this. <laughs> For the people in the back, right? When you are pained over your failure, that's your emotions responding in the grace of God. There is a godly sorrow. The Bible talks about it in 2 Corinthians 7. It's a godly sorrow that produces repentance. 
Godly sorrow is a good thing. If you can sin and you don't care, and you're like, bro, I'm like blowing it up, and I love it. I'm about to blow it up again. Can't wait to blow it up some more. Let's go blow it up. Like, if that's you, you're not saved. I'm not being mean. That's real. You don't, you don't have a yes in your heart to God. You love sin. You don't love Jesus. All right? If, if, if sin makes you happy and your emotions respond positively to sin and it's sweet, it makes you feel great, you're not saved. You need to get born again. Jesus loves you. You should get born again. You should really repent of that. That's killing you. Because you know after every high, you came down, and that sucked. After every drunk, and you had to sober up, and you had that hangover, and that was the worst. And after every time, you, you did the one-night stand, and the next one, you're like, what did I just do? And, and, and it sucked. You might have thought you were bowling when you were doing it. But at the end of the day, yeah, not bawling, no. At the end of the day, you know that thing was, it sucked. But if you want to poke, poke your chest out and talk about how awesome you are and all that stuff, okay, that's fine. Try that. Keep, keep rolling with sin and see how that thing just continues to just tear you up. Wildest thing, people that are in sin, their life's completely tore up, and they're full of pride, and they want to act like, I'm good. No, you're not good. Look at your life. Objectively, your life is torn completely up, and that sin is destroying you because that's what sin does. It destroys you. But if you want to respond to the love of God, you want to repent of sin, and you want to turn to Jesus, it's not saying you're going to be perfect. You're saying, I just need Jesus to save me because I'm a freaking wreck. So when you do that, when you say, Jesus, save me, I trust your death, your blood to pay for my sin. I want to be born again. What happens is something shifts on the inside of you. Your mind is actually still dealing with all the same thoughts because you filled it full of that stuff. you got to get it renewed. You know, your, your flesh is tuned a certain way. You've got to get that renewed. But on the inside, your spirit came alive. And all of a sudden, on the inside, though you at times will choose sin, you feel terrible about it. The most miserable people are backslidden Christians. It's miserable. Hanging out, doing all the old stuff, and it never scratches the itch, and it just makes you feel terrible. Oh, that sucks. That's no way to live. If you're backslidden, here's my advice. Front slide. Like, serious, because that sucks. In that place, it's terrible. It's torture. But here's my point. When you have a yes on the inside, your emotions are different. And what I mean by that is this. You're joyful when righteousness is manifest through your life. Sometimes we're immature and we get so joyful we get full of pride about it, but we are joyful. I'm like, I'm a Christian. I did the right thing. Look at me. I'm like God's gift to the planet. So you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But at least your emotions were positive. It's immature, but it's there. Am I making sense to anybody? I can't tell you how many times I was like, yes, I laid hands on them. They got touched. This thing is, it's loaded. Only for the next 25 people, it's like, it's like nothing. He's like, I'm like, what happened? He's like, you're loaded, huh? Oh, cute. Let's, let's just see how loaded you are. I'm like, you feel anything? They're like, uh, no. 
I'm sure I'm loaded. He is not so much. But that excitement about being used by God, do you know what I'm talking about? That excitement about making a righteous choice. Have you been, have you been serving the Lord long enough that you can discern, like, I made a good choice, and a little while ago, I would have made a bad choice. And you, you went, man, praise God, I feel good about that. And even if it's still, you're immature and you got in pride about it, it's still, your emotions were positive. Am I making sense? The pride isn't a good thing, but you see my point. He goes, let me tell you about your heart. Because this is, so many times, uh, young and maturing believers they're so concerned, I'm not the real thing. I'm fake because I've sinned. And I go, yeah, sin is a real problem. We don't sin. We don't want to sin. We should repent of sin. But let me ask you, how did you feel about that? Do you feel great about doing that or do you feel terrible? I felt terrible. How did you feel about when you were like really going good for God? I loved that. Okay, your emotions, they're good. They're good. The way you're emotionally responding to the grace of God, it's good. He wants you to know that, that when you've responded rightly, he sees that. When your emotions have moved towards him, he sees that. He's fixing your identity, and he's saying, your emotions are good, my love. They're beautiful. He's not saying, oh, you're perfect. You've ever, you know, you've only made... <laughs> Only perfect decisions. No, that's not the point. He's your emotions are good. Then he goes, your neck, your will. And I, I found myself in counseling with people, and they're like, I don't know. I just am this and that, and I'm having this problem and this problem and that problem. And, and, and I go, well, let me ask you this. What do you want? And they go, I want Jesus. I go, good. That's good. Let me help you make decisions toward you wanting Jesus. Follow that want to. That's a neck that has golden chains. And so God wants you to see your will. He wants you to see your emotions. He wants you to see your value. And then the last one, he says, you've got dove's eyes. He goes, I know you're faithful. And that's your commitment. And see, the commitment, is it shows back up it shows up for people when they've strayed and they keep coming back. They keep showing back up. They keep praying the prayer, even at the bottom of the barrel in the trash heap. God, please help. He goes, you're committed. He goes, I see you as faithful. I'm calling up the faithfulness of your heart because at the end of the day, I see the commitment you made. All right? The enemy wants to tell you you're an uncommitted, you're a, your will is broken, you, all you want is sin, your emotions are, you know, hypocritical, and that you don't matter. And then you view yourself through that lens, and you just stay covered in shame. But God says, you matter, you're valuable. He goes, your emotions towards me, they're beautiful. Your will, it's lined up, it's beautiful. And he goes, and I'm saying you're faithful, now see yourself that way. And it reorients your identity. If you're struggling with self-hatred, if you're struggling with your identity, 
You need to hear God's opinion. You need to hear about your value, your emotions, your will, and your commitment. And God looks at all those things, and he says, it's good, it's beautiful. Do you hear me tonight? Listen, when you fail, rehearsing your failure is not the path to feeling the way God wants you to feel. Yeah. When you fail, looking at the failure and saying, God, I repent of that. I repent. You can't just go, didn't happen, I'm good. That doesn't work either. But you fail and you go, I just failed. That was a fail. God, I repent. I turn away from that and I turn towards you. How do you think about me? He goes, look at my son on the cross. That's how valuable you are. And the fact that you feel bad about that, your emotions are beautiful. And your will, the fact that you've turned your will, it's beautiful. He goes, I call that faithful. That, that reorients your identity. Am I making sense? Guys, this is not, I'm not teaching you a philosophy lesson. I'm teaching you a process to go through when that other voice is smashing you and telling you you're not worth anything. You have to take those thoughts captive. I reject that in the name of Jesus. And then you have to turn and go, God, how do you feel about me? And go right to Song of Solomon 1.9. He goes, you're my favorite. You're valuable. Your will, it's lined up. I see your emotions. I call you faithful. You're beautiful. That pulls you right out of that wreckage of that bad self-identity that's being hammered by every other voice. Am I making sense? Okay. So back in chapter 2, he goes, you're a lily among thorns. You're better than you thought you were. He goes, I'm a lily of the valley. He goes, no, it's better than that. Lily among thorns. Everything else compared to you is thorns. But you, you're beautiful. Powerful. So then verse 3, she's going to respond. She goes, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So Remember, in chapter 1, she goes, the sun is burning me. How, how, when the sun is beating down at noon, how do you feed your flock and how do you make it rest? And remember, we talked about, he says, you got to follow in the footsteps of the flock. You got to get in church. You got to get yourself under authority and you got to pour yourself into someone else. And he, he, he directs her back to the place where she was actually wounded. And I mentioned it last week, but so often God will use the ones that look like the ones that hurt you to be the ones that heal you. Shekabase. No, it's, I mean, this is like, Guys, this is so comprehensive. It's so true, though. Here, I've watched this for 30 years. If you have a father wound, God will use a father oftentimes to teach you about the father. 
If you have a mother wound, he'll use a mother oftentimes to teach you about God's nurturing heart and healing that mother wound. Okay? I'll just go there. If you have been wounded by somebody of the opposite race or a different race, he will use oftentimes somebody from that race where you got wounded to be the hands that heal. I'm just going to take a side journey. You look around in this room and you see we're multicultural in here, right? There's something that we get to do that if we were in a monochrome environment, we wouldn't get to do. And that's be able to be present for people in their pain when they've had racial wounding, whatever direction it is, and be hands that heal and understand and be safe in an environment that has every kind of cultural striation. If you're in a monochrome environment, no, you, don't, you, don't, you can't do that work. In other words, if I was, a, if I was leading an all-white church and it was all white people, there would be no way that we could engage with people from other cultures because we're all white. Or if, if I was black and I was in an all-black church, we couldn't engage with other cultures because we're all black or Asian or Hispanic, right? Now, I'm not faulting anybody or shading anybody, but there's something that God's given us to do where we are together across cultures so that we can heal where there's been wounds. Am I making sense? So often, he will use the one that looks like the one where you got hurt, he will use that one as a healer. Thank you. Thank you. Got that one amen to double. It was a double portion over there. Whoever said that, thank you. So, verse 3. Sorry, it's a little side journey. So, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. So now she is responding. She says, there's something about him. I've followed in the footsteps of the flock. I've put my tent by the shepherd's tents. She goes, and now I'm finding him, and he's a fruitful tree. And, and and she goes, and I sat down in his shade. She says, all of a sudden, I'm out of walking in my own strength, and I'm resting underneath him. And he is, he is putting shade over me. Where I was getting burned by the sun, now I'm being protected from the sun. She thought, oh, I'm just going to follow in the footsteps of the flock, and I'm just going to go put my tent by the shepherd's tent. But she ended up finding out, oh, and where they are is right next to him, who's an apple tree. And underneath him is shade. And underneath him is rest. And he is fruitful. So that when I receive from him, I'm nourished. She goes, where do you make it rest at noon? Where do you feed your flock? He goes, by the shepherd's tent, oh, by the way, I'll be there too. And the shade covers her, and the, the fruit of him, his nature, that's the fruit of him, his nature, it's like the fruit of the Spirit, his nature, it begins to nourish her. Okay? And so she realizes that he is somebody completely different in all humanity. She's like, all the trees of the wood He's the only one that can nourish me. He's the only one that's like an apple tree. 
And, and so she says, I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And so she gets to this place of rest. She gets to this place of protection, of being nourished by God. She's, she is experiencing pleasure. And then in verse 5, she says, he brought me to the banqueting house. Banqueting house, that's the house of wine. That's what that's known as. In fact, one translation calls it the house of wine. He brought me to the house of wine. That's called joy. So what you're finding right now is these other intentional activities of God because her identity has been, it's been worked on in an incredible way. But now there's these other activities of God that's bringing her to this other place where she's going to say, I'm lovesick. Okay? And so here's the point. What he's doing for her is he's giving her a vision. You got to hear me right now. He's giving her a vision. Now, I don't know what your life vision is. And you might not even say, I don't even have a life vision. I don't know. And that's, that's good. That's actually fine. I don't think you should remain visionless. <laughs> Floating around like a cotton ball in the wind. Don't do that. I think you need a vision. But I think you probably don't need the vision you think you need. What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to be? How much money are you going to make? What place of power are you going to occupy? What success are you going to achieve? What do you have to show for yourself? Right? And so then people go, I'm going to be this, and I'm going to be that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get this one degree, I'm going to get the second degree, I'm going to get 14 degrees. I'm going to dominate everything, you know. That's my vision. I'm going to dominate. And so what he does is he completely reorients her for a life vision. Now, follow this. She says, I sat down. So he gives her rest. She says, I sat down. He gives her rest. Then she says, in his shade, he gives her protection. Then she says, with great delight. And so she's experiencing pleasure. And then she says, his fruit was sweet. So now he, she's getting refreshed. And then she says, he brought me to the banqueting house. And she's getting filled with joy. Okay? So rest, protection, pleasure, refreshing, and joy. Rest, protection, pleasure, refreshing, and joy. Have you ever had a season, maybe when you first got saved even, or maybe it's happening for you now, where you just felt like with him at all the time, it just felt so restful and peaceful, and you felt so protected? People talk about spiritual warfare, you're like, whatever, the devil's under my foot. I eat devils for breakfast, whatever. Like, you know, like you don't, you're like, I don't even know why you're even saying spiritual war, it's not even a thing, like, whatever. Rest. You're like, oh, his presence is so rich, so good, so peaceful. You know, the guy over there is like, I'm trying to feel God. I don't feel anything. You're like, oh, it's so pleasurable. It's like a warm bath every time I say Jesus. Rest, 
protection, pleasure. Yeah, every time, every time, especially young believers, every time I open the Bible, it doesn't matter where I open, I just read a verse, oh, God hits me. I can play Bible roulette, boom. So refreshing, the word's so alive. Every time I open the Bible, the word is so alive. Oh, I love the Bible. And it's funny because I'll talk to that same person six months later. I go, how's your word life? They're like, dead as a doornail. I'm like, what happened? Uh, God hates me. <laughs> it's like the way they orient their life, they don't, they don't understand what's happened. They don't get what's happened. So you go through these seasons of refreshing and rest and pleasure and protection. Nothing's going wrong. And, and then you're just, you're just filled with joy all the time. You ever, you ever had a season where it's like everything's hitting Every Bible passage is hitting. Every worship service is hitting. Every message is being preached is hitting. It's just all so good. It's like there is no spiritual warfare. You're protected. You're safe. It's all glorious. That season was incredibly intentional. That season was to bring you to this place where she says, I am lovesick. She goes, it's so good. Sustain me and refresh me. What does that mean? I want to stay here, and I want you to make it new forever. It's so good. I never want to leave here. And she says this phrase, and this phrase, listen to me, this phrase needs to be your life vision. I am lovesick. What he's done is he's ministering to her in such a way that she's beginning to taste and experience the superior pleasures of being loved by God and what that means to her soul. She's experiencing the beauty and the joy of love. She's experiencing the protection and the safety. She's experiencing the joy, the inebriation with his love. And she goes, you know what? I never want to leave this place. And then she says, I'm lovesick. And that right there is when the vision that God wants to give her, it's rooted in her. Lovesick means this. There is nothing else in this life that will satisfy me like your love. Lovesick is a lifelong vision to experience the love of God at the highest dimension. Did you hear that? It's a lifelong vision to experience the love of God at the highest dimension. I don't know all the things that are working on you, why you're, you're responding to the grace of God, what it is that you're after in the grace of God, why you're drawn to worship and to hear teaching or read your Bible or whatever it is that you do in your devotional time. But here's the point, the pinnacle, the main, the the supreme reason that God has wooed you, that he's drawn you, that he's protected you and delighted you and touched your soul is so that you get a lifelong vision, and that lifelong vision is to experience the love of God in the highest dimension. 
And here's what happens to so many young believers. I watch this. And a lot of times it has to do with the, the inputs that they're getting. And so they get, they get like talked into a different vision. So they experience rest and protection. They experience pleasure and joy and delight and refreshing. They experience all this stuff. And, some, and, and then some well-meaning person comes along and goes, God's anointing you to serve him with all your heart. And you're called to be the most amazing coffee maker ever. <laughs> And, and they stop there. And they identify some kind of act of service for God. You're anointed to be a preacher, a singer, a musician, a counselor, a demon caster outer. I saw you. You casted out a demon. And now you're anointed to be a demon deliverer. And so you, you, here's what happens. In that season of encounter, in the banqueting house of wine, the joy of the Lord, the pleasure of God, the presence of God, everything's awesome. And all of a sudden, bang, now you've got a vision. You're going to be a revivalist. And many times it's very noble. But whatever it is, if it is not a vision to experience the love of God at the highest dimension, it is an inferior vision. And it will lead you to a place of burnout. Hear me. Hear me. Gosh, you got to hear me. If your life vision isn't about the love of God at the highest measure, you are living for an inferior purpose. And she comes to grips with this truth. I am lovesick. I am jacked up because the only thing that's going to satisfy me is the love of God. She goes, sustain me. Refresh me. It's all I want. And it's in that moment that he's caused her to come to grips with his greatest desire for her, and she's responding with this truth. I am lovesick because she says this, his banner over me is love. Listen to me. Listen to me. God's key, his chief intention for your life is love. His banner over you, that's his chief intention, his number one testimony, the main thing that he's after, the reason he made you. The banner over your life is love. To know the love of God, the height, the width, the depth, the length, to know the love of God that passes understanding. This is why you are made for love. Everything else is minor details. And you will spend your life slamming yourself into barrier and boundary and wall after wall after wall, trying to find this truth that you're made for love. It's what you're made for. You're not made for money. You're not made for human power and prowess. Come on, you're not made for just, like, I got multiple degrees and I'm successful. 
That's not what you're made for. You are made for love. And here's what we see in verse four and five is there's an intersection that happens. His vision and his intention for her life matches her desire and her vision for her life. Sustain me, refresh me, I'm lovesick. He goes, well, that works really well because my banner over you is love. He goes, oh, you're in this for love? He goes, me too. Hear me, guys. Hear me. If you can settle it right now that whatever journey God gets you on, wherever he takes you, it's been about him wanting to introduce you to his love at the greatest measure, then all of a sudden everything in your life, the perspective on everything changes. Whether you go through hardship or whether you go through blessing, whether you go through up or down, if you understand his banner over you is love, it's all been for love, it shifts everything. He only allows the things in your life that he can make for better. The ingredients that he's allowed have made for better. You may be in a shipwreck in ashes right now and you're groping for God and you're going, how is this better? And here you are groping for God. And you go, he couldn't have had to take all that. I don't know how hard-headed you are. I mean, I say that as much respect as possible. I don't know how hard-headed I am. But I know how hard-headed I've been. His banner over you is love. Every intention of his, of his heart for you, of your whole life has been love. If you can get to the place where your vision is for love, now your vision and his intention match. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're the garbage collector or you own the garbage company. It just doesn't matter because it's all about love. And then now you can, now you can reassess your life. The difficult people in life, they're there to help you get more in love with God. <laughs> You're like, oh, Jesus, this person is about to kill me. He goes, talk to me more, honey. I wanted to talk to you. You won't talk to me. So I put that person next to you. Now you're talking to me. Keep talking, baby. I love you so much. Keep talking. Uh, they're trying to kill me. He's like, that's right. I put them next. I put them next to you to try to kill you. So you would run to me because I want to love you. He has to rebuild your identity so he can give you this vision. As long as your identity is based in some sort of performance, you'll have a vision for achievement that's not love. That's a bomb right there, guys. 
He's got to rebuild your identity so you can have this vision. As long as your identity is based on some style of achievement that's not love, you'll have a vision for something like that. You'll live your whole life trying to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Chasing mirages. Let me, let me tell you, before I understood that God made me for love, I was always looking for another dimension of success. Ministry success. So when I got this many people coming, then I needed this many to feel successful. And then when I got that many, I needed this many to feel successful. And all of a sudden I realized there's some kind of thing here like no matter how much I do, I'm never successful. Because my vision wasn't love. My vision was to receive approval. Is this making sense? He wants to reorient your identity in his love by speaking over you the way he sees you. And he wants to give you a lifelong vision. A vision to know his love at the highest dimension. Whether you're on a platform in front of a million or sitting in a corner playing with a preschooler one service a month. Another plug for children's ministry. It just doesn't matter because it's love. It's love. Amen? Let's stand. That went fast. At least for me it did. Truly, I try to keep, I'm trying to get our services shorter and they're getting longer. I'm not sure what the problem here is. But my vision is love. Amen. Let's just close our eyes for a minute. Let's reorient around the thoughts and the questions that I asked at the beginning. What is your identity built on? What is the vision of your life built on? What's the internal conversation? Do you mostly hear on the inside, you look good and I like you? Or do you mostly hear you're not good enough? You're not measuring up. Your will is jacked up. Your emotions, you don't care. You're not even a real Christian. You see, he's not saying those words of shame and condemnation. He's calling out the budding virtues. He's saying, you're beautiful. Believe me, you're beautiful. You're valuable. You're faithful. Your will is good. 
That's not in and of yourself without the cross. It's the born again you, the yes on the inside. He said, it's beautiful to me. I want to take a moment with this. If you'd just be honest and you'd say, God, I need you to rebuild my identity and speak truth to my soul. Reorient the way I see myself. I want you to step out from where you're standing and come down here. need you, God. I need you, Jesus, to tell me how valuable I am to you so I can see myself the way you see me. Don't let this moment pass you. I'm convinced transgenderism, homosexuality, sexual perversion, sexual addictions, pornography addictions. They're a symptom of a broken identity. Lord, I'm asking you for each person right now, each one standing here, you would begin a journey of rebuilding identity. Rebuilding the broken places in the soul by speaking your love and your affirmation in the areas of their will and their emotions, of their value. And of their faithfulness, God, speak. Do you know the way you move me? I speak to every demonic influence of self-hatred, self-doubt, every diminishing spirit, every spirit of negation. I speak right to you, and I command you to loose them and let them go now. Now, 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 now. Just stay right there. If you'd say to me, I realize I have had a vision for something that's going to keep me on a hamster wheel and I'll never be satisfied, but I want a vision for the love of God at the highest dimension. I want that. I want to live lovesick, desiring love. I want you to step up from where you are. Come down here. I'm going to ask the Lord to minister to you. Hey. Love is the vision of your life. Encounter 
with his affections as the vision of your life in the highest measure, at the highest dimension. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. Breathe on us. Breathe on us, Spirit of the living God. Lord, I can't do this for people, but you can. Whisper truth in their ears, the way you feel, the way you think. Rebuild and restore identity. God, where self-hatred has taken a hold, I pray, break its hold right now in the name of Jesus. Broken self-images, I'm asking for repair right now in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I ask for seasons of rest and pleasure and joy, protection and refreshment. I'm asking for that right now. To root our vision in love at the highest dimension. Hey! 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 I come against you self-hatred right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Loose! I command the mocking spirit Cease in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I command you, cease. All demonic chatter, cease in the name of Jesus. Hey! Just ask him, Jesus, how do you feel about me? Talk to me, Jesus. Is your will, your want to. It's good. It's beautiful. Your desire is beautiful. You are faithful. You are valuable. Your response to me is beautiful. You are the rose. You are the rose. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. We'll see you in the next message.